What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On April 1st, 1990, Arizona State Trooper Michael Miller was out on the road when he spotted a truck pulled over on the side of Interstate 10 in Casa Grande. Officer Miller pulled off the interstate and parked behind the truck. After approaching the suspicious vehicle, he peered into the cab of the truck and was met with a shocking image. He came face to face with a terrified woman, chained up like an animal. He immediately handcuffed the truck driver and put him into his patrol car. I think he was probably thinking, how am I gonna get out of this one? What do I do now? Officer Miller was unaware that he had just apprehended a sadistic killer with years of violence behind him. He is without doubt one of the most dangerous men ever to have stalked the American highway. For more than a decade, this man had been raping, torturing, and killing vulnerable women across the country, remaining completely undetected. I think that Robert Ben Rhodes is probably the most evil person I've ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of evil people. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Robert Ben Rhodes. Robert Rhodes was born in November 1945 in Council Bluffs, Iowa. His mother was his primary caretaker, as his father Ben spent most of his time overseas serving in the military. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that his father's absence had a huge impact on the young boy. So there are periods of time when Rhodes' father is away from the family home, and, and I think there's a sense in which he perhaps misses him. There's a sense in which that the family feels incomplete, and there's a longing for an attachment to his father. But when his father returns, he's quite brutal. He's quite violent towards him. So I think he did feel this conflict about his relationship with his father all the time. And when Rhodes was a teenager, his relationship with his father took a turn for the worse. When Rhodes was 16, his father was convicted for sexually assaulting a 12-year-old girl. So his father was essentially an abuser. And this behavior was a reflection of a misogynistic value system that he had, that women and girls were there to be used and abused, that they served a, a function for men. And I think that was something that would have cemented itself in Rhodes' mind. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell has more. Ben was an army veteran and a firefighter. Could hardly be a more upright member of the community. So imagine the shame that would have fallen upon him for his arrest for sexually lascivious behaviour. I think another important thing when we look at his father's conviction is his father's response to it. So he takes his own life shortly after he's convicted of this crime. And in this case, 
Suicide is the ultimate act of control. It's the ultimate way of saying, I'm not going to take responsibility for my own actions. I'm going to decide to opt out of this whole thing altogether. Was it that that made the change to Rhodes' character? Was it that that flicked the switch? As an adult, Rhodes seemed to struggle at every turn. After high school, he joined the Marines, but was dishonorably discharged after being involved in a robbery. Afterwards, he briefly attended college before dropping out. He also tried to become a police officer, but was denied due to the dishonorable discharge. And while jumping from one job to the next, he married twice. Both marriages ended in divorce. However, in the late 1970s, Rhodes found a job that was well-suited to someone with deviant and violent tendencies. Eventually, Rhodes finds a job that suits him down to the ground, and that's the job of a long-haul truck driver. So here, he has long periods of time when he's unsupervised, he's off the grid, he doesn't have to answer to anybody, and here, he gets the chance to spend long periods of time on his own, ruminating, fantasizing, and I think this is a very dangerous period in his life. When he was 41, Rhodes married his third wife, Deborah. But former FBI Special Agent Bob Lee says Rhodes' sexual abuse is what pushed the couple to eventually separate. Their relationship, she was disillusioned when the marriage went on because Rhodes wanted to go to a swinger club here in Houston. That was something that she didn't want to do, but he kept pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. Rather than just accepting that and saying, okay, that's fine, he pointed to her and said, well, clearly there's a problem with you. You need to loosen up. So this is showing me that, that his relationships, if you'd call them that with women, they weren't based on mutuality or respect or love or affection. They were simply a way of him getting what he wanted. Deborah admitted subsequently how badly she'd been abused by Rhodes, the man who thought nothing of handcuffing her to the bed or raping her so badly that she feared for her life. But it's undoubtedly true that that form of sexual abuse was the signature that was to develop throughout Rhodes' crimes. Rhodes had developed an uncontrollable and violent sexual appetite. And his job as a long-distance truck driver gave him the perfect opportunity to act out his aggressive sexual perversions on strangers he would meet along the road, with or without their consent. I think it's important to emphasize here the term consent, because there are people who will consensually engage in this kind of behavior. But when it came to Rhodes, he didn't care whether people consented to it or not. He wanted to do this, and whether or not people were happy with that was just completely disregarded. In February 1990, a distressed young woman frantically got the attention of passing drivers in Houston, Texas. She told them she had been abducted by a truck driver and held hostage for two weeks. She was subject to torture, sexual assault, and rape. And she actually had a leash around her neck when she was found by passing motorists. So 
This was a victim of Rhodes. This was somebody who had luckily managed to escape with her life. After telling police her story, officers drove the woman all over Houston, looking for Rhodes' truck. And they immediately started searching for it, and they found it. But uh, when they brought Rhodes out to the car for her to look at him, she just looked down, would not uh, identify him, said, that's not him. It was a huge missed opportunity to catch Rhodes. Later that day, after they let him go, she told him that that was him, but she was too afraid to identify him, even though there were two police officers by her side. She had been completely terrorized and traumatized during the two-week ordeal. Rhodes is such a terrifying man that he puts literally the fear of God into this young woman. Now, that must have even further confirmed Rhodes' absolute sense of invulnerability. It must have even further inflated his already overinflated ego. Having narrowly avoided capture, Rhodes was free to hunt on the highways, bringing horror to anyone subjected to his twisted fantasies. I want to tell you about my new favorite podcast that I have become hooked on. Crime Weekly combines engaging true crime storytelling with the bonus of the detective perspective. Derek Lavasser is a former police detective who has been on multiple shows, including his own show on investigation discovery called Breaking Homicide. Stephanie Harlow is a true crime content creator who is obsessed with the context, the who, the why, the where. She wants to know everything and share it with you. Together, they cover crimes from the headlines as well as lesser known cases and they discuss them in depth from start to finish, leaving no stone unturned. With over 14,000 five-star reviews, I'm clearly not the only one who can't get enough of True Crime Weekly. I love how deeply Stephanie researches and narrates the story, walking you through the case while Derek weighs in with what the -the behind-the-scenes investigatory process really looked like. And it's not what you see in the movies or on television. They recently finished up a series on Lori Vallow, and you may think you know everything about the case. I did too. But as I listened, I realized I was learning things I had never heard of before. I was also fascinated by their coverage of the Adnan Syed case, especially how they broke down the timeline surrounding his whereabouts the day Heyman Lee went missing. I love the chemistry and relationship that Derek and Stephanie have. Their different perspectives bring something fresh and new to each case. Every week, I I can't wait for the next episode to drop because it truly feels like I'm hanging out with friends, talking about true crime, and learning something new each time. Trust me, Crime Weekly is a podcast you're going to want to listen to, and it's one I never miss. Listen to Crime Weekly every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. By the spring of 1990, 44-year-old Robert Ben Rhodes had fully developed into a sexual predator unleashing his brutal sexual assaults on whomever he could lure into his cab. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and Detective Michael Sheely speak more on Rhodes' methods. 
Rhodes' victims were people who would readily get into his truck. He wouldn't have to coerce them to do so. He's looking out for people who are vulnerable. He's looking out for people who need help from truck drivers and motorists. So these are individuals where he already has the access and he already has the opportunity. He'd been a truck driver for a long time and gave him a great deal of opportunity to find victims at local truck stops along the interstate, hitchhikers, which we know were victims. So he had a great deal of opportunity for such a predator as he was, and that's exactly the words that he is. He was a predator. Thanks to his job as a long-distance truck driver, roads have been operating unchecked for more than a decade. But his truck of terror was about to come to a screeching halt. On April 1st, 1990, Arizona State Trooper Michael Miller says he noticed a suspicious truck parked along Interstate 10 in Casa Grande, Arizona. I observed a truck parked on the side of the road with his emergency lights on, but he had no triangles out. So I went up alongside of the truck, to like, pull behind the truck, had my lights activated to go up and check on the driver of the truck and see what his situation was. Armed with a flashlight, Officer Miller took a look through the windows of the truck. I saw some lights in the back of the, in a sleeper berth and peered in the window of the driver's side of the truck. And when I showed my flashlight in, I heard a, uh, a woman started screaming. And what I saw was a woman that looked like she had a horse bit in her mouth. The sight of the woman with a metal restraint in her mouth was shocking. But Officer Miller was surprised again when a man appeared out of the darkness of the truck's cab. The driver came sliding out of the sleeper berth and then came on down to the pavement and put his hands up against the side of the truck. And he said, that's okay, officer, everything's fine. We are consenting adults. And uh, I still heard screaming coming from inside the, the truck. And he said, I've got a gun in my rear pocket and I patted him down, felt it, took it out, put it in my pocket, and then handcuffed him, took him back to my patrol car. I think he was probably thinking, how am I going to get out of this? What do I do now? Believing Rhodes was securely detained, Miller went back to help the woman. And when I got back up there and looked inside, I saw a completely naked female, and I, I took a blanket that was there and covered her up told her that she was uh, okay, that the police were taking care of it, and the, the driver would not bother her anymore. Had Miller spent longer getting the victim out of the truck? The man in his car, Robert Rhodes, would have escaped. Well, I went back to my patrol car, and Mr. Rhodes had uh, got his handcuffs in front of him, and he was in the process of trying to get a key in his pocket to get his handcuffs off. If he'd have done that, he'd have been gone. He'd have fled the scene. Robert Ben Rhodes was arrested and taken to the Casa Grande Police Department, where he was questioned. Way back to bed, invited me back. I think that's about as far as I've ever gone. Detectives discovered that Rhodes's home address was over a thousand miles away in Houston, Texas, which was under the jurisdiction of FBI agent Bob Lee. He had been arrested the night before and they asked me to get some background information on Rhodes since he lived in Houston at the time. Lee says the young woman Officer Miller had rescued 
had been through a traumatic ordeal at the hands of Rhodes. When the victim was interviewed by the detective, she tells him that uh, Rhodes agreed to give her a ride. She said that she fell asleep, and when she woke up, he had her chained in the sleeper compartment and was starting to take her clothes off. He had his truck modified. He had put some anchors on both sides of the sleeper where he could put handcuffs attached to a chain on her feet and the same thing with her hands. But she also said that, you know, I was going to see the president. It uh, makes you wonder what her grip on reality is. And then you take that back to the allegations she's made. And is that a credible statement? With her mental state in question, it was possible that Rhodes could walk free. I think Rhodes believed he was going to get away with this because he very deliberately chose victims who were vulnerable. Um, this particular victim had some mental health issues. Um, she experienced delusions. But the police were very good at their jobs here, and they observed that this woman's story never changed. It was consistent, and that was what mattered. Some of the things that helped corroborate her statement, she said that when Rhodes approached her, she was fighting, trying to, trying to get away from him and said, I bit him on his shoulder. Hey, can you remove your shirt from me? Uh, do I have it? I prefer not. And he had a bite mark on his shoulder. The case didn't go to trial. Uh, Rhodes agreed to uh, enter a guilty plea on a plea bargain and got a reduced sentence on it. In December 1990, Rhodes was sentenced to six years for the kidnapping and sexual assault of the young woman. Meanwhile, Special Agent Bob Lee began to dig into the past of the 45-year-old truck driver. Well, the first thing I did was check our national database for his criminal history. And I found he was a suspect in a, a previous kidnapping. I called the Houston Police Department and spoke to a detective in the sex crimes unit and obtained his report. The report was that of the woman who had been raped and kidnapped, but refused to identify Rhodes in February 1990. Special Agent Lee was now aware of two cases where women had escaped Robert Rhodes. And he was certain that searching the truck driver's apartment would uncover more secrets. I talked to the apartment manager. After she saw in the paper that he'd been arrested, she went up to his apartment to take a look and told me that she saw women's garments all over the apartment. He also had um, chains and handcuffs, and there was a white towel that had a lot of blood on it. There were some um, racks where he could uh, chain somebody to. The apartment bore all the hallmarks of a sexual predator. I found a stack of photographs. I think they were in his dresser drawer. And it showed a young girl who uh, was in various stages of dress. He had, had a lot of nude pictures of her. He had pictures of her chained up. And I could tell that he had held her for a while because on some of the photographs, she, she had some bruises. But over time, the bruises were changing color. So that told me that she had been captive for at least a week or so. 
So they knew that at very least he has definitely harmed other women and at worst killed them. But they didn't have any actual cases to connect this evidence to. So this was the beginning of a very long investigation. The pictures of that young girl haunted Special Agent Lee. I tried to identify the girl. I, I carried a picture with me, and every time I went to a different police department, I'd show it to the officers to uh, see if uh, any of them recognized her, did they have a missing person case or anything like that. Then, in September 1990, more than 800 miles away in Bond County, Illinois, Detective Michael Sheely received reports of a body discovered in an old barn. So I went out to this rural community and met with the sheriff out there, and um, he had told me that a local farmer was going to donate this particular barn to the fire department to burn down. And he was making a last-minute inspection and had found what he believed to be the remains of a human body. The remains were found hidden up in the hayloft. They were badly decomposed, and it was clear that the victim had been murdered. It was very apparent that there had been a wire garret made, a ligature, if you will, to place it around the victim's neck. And it's our belief that she was bound and handcuffed over a large beam that raised her hands up. And it's our belief that he placed the wire around her neck. Then he continued to squeeze that with this broken piece of board throughout and then strangled her to death. And he twisted this ligature at least 16 times, according to the medical examiner. So he would not only have enjoyed torturing her, but he would have enjoyed watching her die. A forensic anthropologist believed that the body had been in the barn for about six months. The other thing he did is that he gave us gender identification, said it was the body of a young girl. He gave us an age range between 14 and 16 years old. He gave us hair color, which we thought would assist in the identification early on. What was alarming is we had uh, approximately 950 missing female girls that fit her profile and fit the time of death. So it became overwhelming initially. Hoping to identify the young girl, Detective Sheely sent out details of the victim to missing persons departments across the country. Soon after, a detective in Pasadena, Texas, got back to him. And she contacted me and she said that her victim, a runaway identified as Regina K. Walters, her family had received an anonymous telephone call after her disappearance, saying that she had been left in a barn. Regina's father receives a call on his unlisted number. So this is a number that isn't publicly available. Regina's one of the few people who actually know it. And he doesn't recognize the caller, but the caller tells him that he knows where Regina is, that she's in a barn, that he's cut her hair. And when her father asks, is she still alive, the caller hangs up. So immediately, a lot of red flags that this really sounds like this could be our victim. And so I asked if she had dental records. The dental records confirmed that the body belonged to Regina Walters. She was just 14 years old at the time of her death. Months later, detectives could finally put a name to the face in those haunting photos found in Rhodes' apartment. Well, the, the photographs to identify the young person would, would have been impossible for me uh, from being out there. But the barn that she entered 
I knew every square foot of that barn. I had, I had seen that barn for days and days. And so the minute I saw the photographs of her entering the barn and going into the barn loft and the beams, it just gave you that eerie feeling that, that that's exactly what had happened here. And, and so we were on to this case. Two photos of Regina were particularly disturbing. He had chronologically photographed her. The most telling for us was how he had taken photographs and staged her death and then staged them during the course right before he'd killed her. And looking in her eyes and looking at her face, you can tell that she's terrified. Um, and at that point, she's just, just minutes from being killed. When you see a photograph like that, you have to control your emotions. It's a piece of evidence that you're looking at. You have to realize what your goal is. Your goal is to take this piece of evidence, tie it to someone, and be able to put that person in jail. The story of how Regina Walters ended up in the clutches of Ben Rhodes is a tragic, wrong place, wrong time. Regina had a boyfriend, Ricky Jones, and she and Ricky decided to run away one day. They were out on the highway hitchhiking, and Rhodes stopped his truck and picked him up and took off with her. Um, and that's the last that, um, that she was seen. She's just really a beautiful, young, almost just totally normal 14-year-old girl with just a little rebellion streak. Unfortunately, um, she made the wrong decision. Rhodes kept Regina prisoner in his truck-turned-makeshift torture chamber for two weeks. Those who have looked into the case believe he disposed of her 18-year-old boyfriend, Ricky, almost immediately, since the boy was never seen again after she went missing. She was the prize, and the boyfriend was just surplus to requirements. While the investigation into Regina's murder continued, Rhodes was serving time for kidnapping and sexual assault. However, by early 1992, he was due out on parole. So the clock was ticking for us to make a case against Rhodes. Detectives needed to charge Rhodes fast, or the vicious predator could soon be free to kill again. In January 1992, Robert Rhodes was serving a six-year sentence in Arizona for sexual assault and kidnapping. But the conviction wasn't enough to keep him behind bars forever. And soon, he would be eligible for parole. Detectives in Texas and Illinois had been tirelessly working together to compile evidence against Rhodes for the murder of 14-year-old Regina Walters in 1990. After months of collaboration, they had enough evidence to make the charges against him. FBI Special Agent Bob Lee remembers the day all of their work paid off. The district attorney in Bond County, Illinois, issued an arrest warrant for Rhodes for the murder of Regina Walters just prior to him being released from prison in Arizona. And Detective Sheely flew out to the prison to serve him with the arrest warrant and to bring him back to Illinois to face the charges. 
Detective Michael Shealy recalls meeting Rhodes in the Arizona prison and confronting him with the evidence linking him to Regina. He was cold, he was calculated. Um, he didn't have any trouble looking you square in the eye and saying he's not involved. We provided him with the arrest warrant for murder. Still no reaction, nothing at all. And so I had a eight by 10 photograph of Regina and I put it on the table in front of him, turned it around and I said, this is your victim. And that was the first time any emotion out of, out of him, but it wasn't a, an emotion of, of sorrow or emotion of, of something that he had done. It was, he was angry and he got up and said that the interview was over. He wouldn't speak to us any longer. At a court hearing on September 11th, 1992, Robert Rhodes accepted a plea bargain. He pleaded guilty to the murder of Regina Walters, allowing him to avoid the death penalty and live the rest of his life in prison. Um, the courtroom was packed, a great deal of spectators. There had been a lot of interest in this case because there was now speculation that he was a serial killer. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that day in court spoke volumes about the killer. He didn't just plead guilty, he pled guilty with a smile. He was reveling in the trauma that he created. And for me, that shows that he was still very much the sexual sadist that he'd always been. This is somebody who hadn't changed whatsoever. And I think he enjoyed the opportunity to relive the details of these killings. Regina Walters' family was unable to travel from Texas to Illinois for the hearing. But Michael Shealy made sure to speak on behalf of the grieving family. As he was beginning to exit the courtroom, I just became overly aware, if you will, that there was no one there on behalf of Regina. And so I, I mentioned to him in a very small, faint voice as he began to pass me that it was my certainly my pleasure that I was gonna to get to send him into prison for the rest of his life. And um, he was uh, really upset at that comment and, uh, and told me to, um, to get And so, um, maybe um, not as professional as I should have been, I returned um, and told him where he was going. I was hoping that that was gonna happen to him. So that was my last real conversation with Robert Ben Rhodes. And looking back at it, I'm kind of glad that that's what I told him. Rhodes was safely behind bars and investigators continued to search for other victims. There were so many missing persons across the country who fit Rhodes's MO. Rhodes would target his victims, generally people that either had mental deficiencies or heavy drug users that he picked up hitchhiking. Uh, he referred to them as lot lizards. These are, as he described, women that hang around truck stops to uh, take care of the truckers or to swap sex for rides somewhere. He is so itinerant. He literally crosses state line after state line after state line all over the United States. They aren't to know it, but when they climb into the cab of Rhodes' truck, their lives are to change forever. He not only kidnapped women, but he kept them and tortured them for as much as two or three weeks at a time. Uh, and that made him uh, a special kind of evil as I saw him. In 2003, 11 years after Rhodes had been imprisoned for the murder of Regina Walters, a Texas ranger named Brooks Long began investigating the disappearance of two hitchhiking newlyweds 
Douglas Sikowski, and Patricia Walsh, who had gone missing in January 1990. They were both from Seattle, Washington. They had basically given up their personal belongings and were traveling to the East Coast of the United States, primarily for religious reasons. The family searched extensively for them, but then the remains of Douglas were located around 1990, but there was not a formal identification of it being Douglas Iskowski until 1992 through dental records. So there wasn't much to go on. There was no witnesses. There were several suspects, but nobody was actually linked to the crime. Remains of the 28-year-old Zikowski had been discovered in Crockett County, Texas. Ranger Long was interested in re-examining the ballistic evidence that had been found at the scene. Mr. Zikowski was shot multiple times in the head. He was shot with a Jennings J-22 semi-automatic handgun. This information was obtained by not only the projectiles removed from his head, but also the casings that were left behind on the crime scene that were collected by law enforcement. So what was unique about the ballistic information was that the ammunition used in the murder of Mr. Zaskowski was very rare. This Tossin-branded ammunition had a very distinct T on its casings. Taking that into consideration, Long initially ruled Rhodes out as the potential killer. The reason he was eliminated at that time was simply because the ammunition that was seized from Robert Ben Rhodes was marketed under the name of Arms Corps. Ranger Long contacted the Casa Grande police to take a closer look at the ammunition found in Rhodes' truck when he had been arrested for kidnapping in April 1990. And when he called me, I asked him to open the Arms Corps box and to describe the head stamp on the casing. And he said, it's a T. So, that was the first clue that this is the guy, most probably is the guy, and we need to put efforts and resources into this because that all matched. Armed with this evidence, Ranger Long got to work gathering all of the information he had on the killer. He was determined to find a link between Rhodes and Douglas's 24-year-old wife, Patricia Walsh. She's probably out there somewhere and they may not even know who she is because Douglas had no identification, he had no clothing, uh, Regina K. Walters didn't have any identification, she didn't have any clothing. So when you looked at those two situations, what I started doing was looking for a red-headed female in her mid-twenties that was probably naked and would have been shot with a Jennings J-22 handgun with toss and ammunition. Eventually, Long received word of an unidentified body in Millard County, Utah. Investigators had not been able to identify the remains for some time. So after I obtained that information, I reached out to the Millard County Sheriff's Office and inquired as to the status of that case. And what I was told by their chief deputy was, we haven't solved it and the skeletal remains are actually inside our evidence vault. So I was able to tell him, I know who that victim is, and I also know who killed her. Long's suspicions were correct. Dental records revealed that the remains did in fact belong to Patricia Walsh. Millard County had projectiles and had casings that matched. The same gun killed Douglas Zaskowski killed 
Patricia Candace Walsh. So that was linked. Then the timeline on the records, we were able to determine that Rhodes was traveling westbound. So what made sense was, is he eliminated Douglas Iskowski first. Douglas was essentially just a barrier because Patricia was what Rhodes wanted. So he killed Douglas, he dumped his body very quickly, but he kept Patricia alive for seven days and he tortured her and he raped her before he eventually killed her and disposed of her body. In 2003, 13 years after her remains had been found in Utah, Patricia Walsh had been identified, linking yet another victim to Robert Ben Rhodes. Patricia must have been absolutely terrified during the days that she spent with Rhodes. And I think during this time, she probably tried to placate him. She probably tried to plead with him and interact with him. But there would be absolutely no reaction to that from Rhodes because this guy was essentially a killing machine. He wasn't affected by other people's trauma or, or emotion. He got off on people's fear. And I think the more afraid that Patricia was, the more he enjoyed it. But investigators still needed to find some hard evidence to connect Rhodes and the newlyweds before they could prosecute him for their murders. So now became an analysis and comparison, not only for DNA under Douglas Zaskowski, now there was analysis to be done in comparisons relating to Patricia Candace Walsh. And what had happened on that is eventually there was an, a match that was located on a white towel that was seized from Robert Ben Rhodes's truck that was matched to the DNA of Patricia Candace Walsh. So there was an affirmative link. The MO, the timeline, these things fit. And Rhodes was in custody. He was in jail in the state of Illinois. With these findings, authorities had what they needed to bring Robert Ben Rhodes back to the courtroom. By 2005, Robert Rhodes was several years into his sentence for the murder of Regina Walters. And now investigators were determined to bring him to justice for the death of two more victims. Texas Ranger Brooks Long was ready to present the new facts he had uncovered to a jury. The Crockett County Grand Jury returned two indictments for capital murder on Robert Ben Rhodes for the murder of Douglas Scott Zaskowski and Patricia Candace Walsh, based on the evidence and the information that was presented. So essentially, he was extradited and detained in the state of Texas. And as we were preparing for trial, he pled guilty to both cases and received multiple life sentences. At this point, Robert Rhodes had now admitted to three murders. After working as a truck driver for more than a decade, Detective Michael Shealy and journalist Jeffrey Wansel say Rhodes had perfected his M.O. for murder. I think that Robert Ben Rhodes preyed on people that I think we coined the term later as disposable. He looked at people that had some checkered history, people that, that he believed wouldn't immediately be missed. And so I think he systematically profiled his victim, if you will. And I think he was very good at it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of those folks out there. And Rhodes knew that. He had an endless supply of people that he could prey on, and he did. As far as Rhodes is concerned, any woman 
hitchhiking or working in a truck stop is fair game. And after all, who's going to miss them? It is a perfect combination. If you were to devise a fictional serial killer, Rhodes would be a very, very good example. After this latest indictment, Ranger Brooks Long continued to search for more of Rhodes's victims. And Long had what he thought was a pretty obvious jumping off point with Ricky Jones, the 18-year-old boyfriend of Regina Walters. After the work had been done to identify who the killer was relating to Douglas Iskowski and Patricia Walsh, then there was resources put into myself in trying to locate Ricky Lee Jones. Because as I reviewed the file and reached out to officers and witnesses in that case, it was obvious that he had never been located. His remains had never been found. Jones had been missing since early 1990. Evidence found in Rhodes's truck when he was arrested in Arizona in the same year suggested he could be the young man's killer. During the course of the search that was done by the FBI, there was a notebook that was found, a very, very alarming notebook, where Rhodes had kept information. In that information, in that notebook, was phone numbers and, and family names. Um, there was even a notation with a drawing of a knife with, with what appeared to be like blood drops. And it said, Ricky's dead. Ricky Jones is dead. Long forwarded this new information to several police departments. He was determined to find Ricky Jones. We didn't get anything back from these agencies. But as I, on my own, started searching unsolved homicides and looking at various databases online, I essentially came across a young white male's remains that were found in Mississippi. I then reached out to law enforcement and it was unfortunate because we were able to obtain some teeth from the remains in Mississippi, and we were able to obtain samples, biological samples from Ricky Lee Jones' biological mother, and those were compared and they were matched. So we knew that we'd located Ricky Lee Jones. The bad part about that was that the remains could not all be located. so. Robert Ben Rhodes has never stood trial for the abduction and murder of Ricky Lee Jones simply because there was a lack of evidence. Authorities just didn't have enough evidence to charge Rhodes, but it's widely believed that he killed the 18-year-old before murdering his girlfriend, Regina Walters. In fact, many investigators maintain Rhodes is responsible for many, many more deaths of innocent people. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley is among them, and she says the story of Robert Ben Rhodes is unfinished. This is a case that is, is unresolved. It's a case that's incomplete. There are going to be many, many families across America missing relatives who've been murdered by this individual, and they deserve justice. I think during the course of the investigation, initially, um, we believe that it was probably in the neighborhood of probably 10 to 15. But as the investigation grew and, and the FBI spent a lot of time with it, the Behavioral Science Unit spent a great deal of time and effort, and they had actually linked him up to approximately 45 
homicides through, throughout the United States that not only fit his profile, but fit his timeline as well as a truck driver. I don't think there's any doubt that there's other victims and there's other crimes that can be linked to Robert Ben Rhodes. I think that science and the ability to link potential suspects through DNA are somewhat limited in this case because of his MO and what he would do with those victims. But as other agencies become aware of Robert Ben Rhodes, hopefully some of this information will get back to the right investigator or officer or even family member that might be able to listen and say, hey, why don't you look at this guy? Whatever the true number of victims, there could have been more had it not been for that chance encounter with Officer Michael Miller on the side of I-10 in Casa Grande, Arizona in April 1990. The most striking moment in, in the case is that wonderful Arizona Highway Patrol officer coming upon this rig with its hazard lights flashing, climbing up, looking through the window and seeing a young woman trapped in the car who starts screaming. That was the moment in which finally Rhodes's extraordinary run of killing came to an end. And had that officer not gone to check on that truck, he could well be killing people right now. I had a phone call from her many, many, many years ago. She and she thanked me for for saving her life. I said, "Well, hey, I'm just doing my job. You enjoy your life and have a good one. I'm glad you, you have a life to have." Robert Ben Rhodes remains behind bars at the Menard Correctional Center in Illinois. He will never be released from prison. I think that Robert Ben Rhodes is probably the most evil person I've ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of evil people. He had the ability to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was able to coerce people to trust him and gain confidence in his good old boy laid back attitude. But once he had their trust and their guard was down, then you saw the real Robert Ben Rhodes come into play. I hesitate and always have hesitated to use the word monster, but Rhodes certainly deserves to be called a monster. I dealt with many murderers, but of all of those, the one that stands out as far as the lack of emotion, the lack of remorse, he wins the prize by far. There is no feeling to this man. There is no inkling of remorse. There's no inkling of anything. The only regret he has is that he got caught. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. In December 1998, a man slipped undetected into the home of 39-year-old Claudia Benton. When he emerged, the mother of two had been brutally beaten 
sexually assaulted, and fatally stabbed. He seemed to be almost ghost-like the way he could get into houses without being heard, and you know, ghosts scare people. The killer used trains to hop the border between the U.S. and Mexico for more than two decades, killing at least nine people and expertly evading the police. There's 140,000 miles of track in North America. So how do you get your head around that? How do you find someone that's riding the rail? Capturing the phantom killer would prove to be one of the FBI's toughest cases to crack. And no one was safe. You never really knew who was going to be the next victim. It was whoever had something that he wanted, and that could be anybody. 